0: Hello, everyone, welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks and actually how they talk about soft skills. So we want the world to stop calling these things soft skills. We want to call things like leadership, teamwork, communication, these super important competencies to start calling them strong skills. When you call them soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills and one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings of shift your mind come from my book, which came out last October, which was called shift your mind. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook If you want more Brian time in your ears at audible, I actually narrated it. It was a painful experience. But I hope you enjoy my voice and you can listen to the book on Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased and I've been overwhelmed by the response that so many people have given me and have shared via social media. I get texts, I get private messages from strangers, from family members, from friends, from people that are listening to this podcast that they're enjoying the book. So I hope you enjoy it and I wrote it so that hopefully it can help people unlock their potential. Additionally, I run an accelerator program where I coach executives. I coach people in sports and business, and I help them grow, learn, and figure out how they can lead and perform better. So, the accelerator program involves one on one coaching. It involves a monthly group Zoom chat with all of my past clients. It also involves an annual retreat. So, if all of those things interest you, our next accelerator actually launches in July and is almost full. So, if you're interested in learning more, you can email me, Brian at Strongskills.co. That's Brian at Strongskills.co. Or, heck, even if you enjoyed today's conversation or if you want to riff on the book and what resonated with you or what you disagree with, you can always send me an email. I'm pretty damn good at responding. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. You can do that for the book as well on Amazon. Both really help us expand our reach for the book and for this podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. I Really am tremendously grateful for you listening, for you reading, and for your support. I don't take it lightly. Now to today's guest, which is way more interesting than any of the stuff that I just talked about. Becky Burley is today's guest. She's currently the head coach at the University of Florida, but she is about to retire. She has been at the University of Florida for 27 years. She actually started the program. She was the first head coach of the University of Florida women's soccer program and before that she was the head coach at barry college in rome georgia at the age of 21 so she was the captain of her soccer team she actually played defense and goalie which we're going to get into in this conversation and then she went on to coach at the age of 21 pretty wild stuff at 26 she was at florida Heading up that program, starting that program, and in four years at the age of 30, she helped lead University of Florida to a national championship, and you may recognize some of the players that she coached, and we're going to get into that in this conversation, but she is An amazing leader. She thinks deeply about character. She thinks deeply about what drives winning. And and that is a question and a statement. And we're going to get into that in this conversation. But Becky, even though she's had an illustrious career and she's become a legend in the soccer community, she's just getting started. And she really is obsessed and interested in how do coaches develop? How do they get better? How do they improve beyond the X's and O's? So that's what this conversation is about. There are tons of gems in it, and I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Coach Becky Burley. Becky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As I started to research you and your background, there was one thing that popped for me that I had to start with, which is your DJing. and. <laughs> Of all things, things, we're going to go deep and we're going to have really meaningful conversations, but I want to find out from you why this is something that you are interested in, pursued, do, tell us about your DJing prowess, if you have a favorite (laughs) song, and then it'll come back to me, so I will also share a little bit about me on this. Well,
1: point. well, let's just be clear. Like, I don't like scratching the club or anything. <laughs> so um, I started doing it because I was at a friend's house for a New Year's Eve party. And um, he was like, I can't get people to dance. And I, this is how old this was. I had an iPod in my car. And I'm like, let me get my iPod. So I came in with it and um, people started dancing. And one of the guests at the party was a DJ in downtown Gainesville. And he's like, you know, there is kind of like a little art to filling the floor and keeping the floor filled. He's like, you're pretty good at this. You should do it. And I was like, Okay. So I just bought a little setup and then I started doing like friends, parties and weddings and things like that. And first wedding, man, they took a huge leap of faith having me do that. But now I've done it for some former players and friends and family. And it's just kind of a fun thing to do. Tailgates, tailgates also.
0: She's available for all of your needs. (laughs) We're going to get to her retirement and what she's up to. Um, We'll find out how much DJing she's going to be doing. but. Here's why this is something that I wanted to start with. I always joke that you can find me at the intersection of a dance floor and a deep conversation. And those are the places that I love to live. And I think Human beings have multiple sides to them and we tend to label them as one way, but they usually have more depth. And it's interesting because I joke with my friends that if they needed me to, I could plan every aspect of a wedding. I don't want to be a wedding planner. Like that would stress the hell out of me. And I don't want to have anything to do with that, but I can help you with music. I can help you with food. I can help you with what to do when people are on the dance floor. So I like to do spin the bottle and get people in a circle and get them going. Maybe some jump rope activities. But <laughs> my friends now look to me at weddings and hope they're like, Brian, all right, we need to get this going. And I'm not a puppet. Like I can't just make it happen. It usually is pretty organic. And the music has a lot to do with my ability huh? to impact it. And,
1: and you know what, here's the thing. Lesson number one of DJing, which applies to life, know your audience
0: yeah when they start with those oldies and like it just can be tough and i will tell you my number one song my number one song for weddings and i want to hear if you have one this is the best and it came on last night at not came on i have a four-year-old daughter it was 10 o'clock at night and she's supposed to be asleep at eight o'clock And she decided to take my wife's phone and the song that she put on is my number one dance song. And we had a dance party at 10 o'clock last night. Tell me how I'm doing parenting. I'm not doing well. (laughs) Starships are meant to fly. Whatever that song is.
1: Oh yeah. Way to go.
0: I do like a jumping Jack activity when that song comes on hands up and touch the sky. Um, There are some curse words in it, but the clean version works for four-year-olds. That's my number one go-to song. What is your number one go-to song for I,
1: I don't know if it's a song but you know you cannot go wrong with Michael Jackson. Like mm-hmm. it covers and spans all eras. In terms of knowing your audience, if you're not sure about your audience, hit MJ and you're good.
0: <laughs> I feel like a lot of DJs go multiple Michael Jacksons when they are are DJing wedding and it is true. I think you can you can really do a wide range of of MJ songs and you're good.
1: Outcast isn't bad either, by the way.
0: We covered it. Let's just and and you know it just really
1: depends on who's at the wedding, but you know you can't go bad can't go bad with a good sing along.
0: Like Mumford and Sons, Lumineers, if you want to slow it down a little bit, and yeah, but that's like for eating music. That's not for the dance floor music.
1: That's right. You've got to you've got to make a distinction between the dinner music, the cocktail hour, and the actual reception.
0: And I will tell you, there is nothing like a wedding that just decides that dancing is not going to be part of the wedding. You know those weddings where you go to oh, and been I,
1: there. DJ oh, Nightmare.
0: Like, what what are you doing? There's no dance floor. And my wedding, I need space. And uh my parents went down the day of the wedding and looked at the dance floor and said it's too small. And believe you me, they were right. It was a sweaty affair. <laughs> it was it was DJ a,
1: Nightmare is. Small or no dance floor and no alcohol.
0: You, you you can't work with that. There's no working. All right. So this is the first podcast that we've ever started with this other side of me. Because usually these conversations go deep and I'm sure we will. But I had to start there because I just thought it was unique and interesting. And for those listening, that is... To me life like we can have deep conversations and be on a dance floor and to me both of those are amazing and as we go into your career i see more of this so i was fascinated by the fact that you played three years on defense in college and then your senior year you play goalie and uh what is that about walk me through (laughs) that that's not a normal thing that i i see often in soccer Um, what happened? Well,
1: well, you got to back it up even a step further. So, um, when I was being recruited for college, um, my high school coach, her daughter was a really good player, all American. And my best friend was a really good player forward. And so my college coach wanted both of those players. And I was like, what about me? What about me? (laughs) And, And he said, well, if you can get those two to come, then you can come. So I got those two to come. Then both of them transferred, and he was stuck with me. So, But the funny thing was is that he recruited me as a forward. I kind of made my way back into the midfield. And then back in the day, we had, like, stopper sweeper. So he tried to hide me at stopper. And then my senior year, uh, our first-string goalkeeper tore ACL the second day of preseason. Our backup goalkeeper found out the third day of preseason that she was academically ineligible. And so he was like, well, who is who is dispensable on our team, that's kind of tall, and that has decent hands. And so it was like a pick me, pick me. (laughs) And so that's how it happened.
0: Have you ever played goalie before?
1: Um, I had, you know, like when you're a kid, you kind of get rotated in goal. But then um, the summer prior to that, I had spent the whole summer on the road doing camps. And one of the big stretches of my camps was a goalkeeper camp, but I was the person like serving the balls to the goalkeepers, but I did learn a lot about goalkeeping that summer so it wasn't like I was totally starting from scratch.
0: And go back a minute, you said you recruited the other two players to come with you and that's how you got in. What did you do to convince them to, to go to school there and, and, and tag along and, and be part of the party.
1: Well, I think that the coach's daughter really was, um, you know, she was very intent on going to college and playing soccer, but my best friend the forward, who was really talented, she was kind of like, I don't know. She played multiple sports. And so I was like, come on, let's do it. it will be fun. Like it's an adventure. And, um, you know, the more we talked about it, the more she got excited about it. And, uh, and that was my first recruiting job.
0: And why did they transfer?
1: I think it was just more like, you know, when you get into the grind of college athletics, it's a little different than the, um, the idea of college athletics. And for me, like I loved the grind. I mean, I loved it. I lived across the street from a soccer field. I spent like my entire weekends there, anytime I could. And those two were a little more um well-rounded, let's say.
0: So they like to have fun in college. Is that exactly. what you're trying to say? Okay. Exactly. So 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 the DJ Becky may not have been college dj oh
1: no the dj becky was uh post-college because in college i spent my entire freshman year walking around saying who raised these people and what are they thinking (laughs) like i was super judgmental i was very uh straight and narrow i was uh i didn't even drink until my senior year after my season because i just thought that was detrimental to my ability to perform
0: where did that come from for you the discipline and and the desire to go toward the grind as you said
1: I think my parents, both my parents are uh, really blue collar. My dad was a maintenance man. Uh, My mom worked occasionally. She worked in a school cafeteria for a little bit. My mom was handicapped. So most of her adult life, she spent in a wheelchair. Um, So I just think that just very down to earth people who work for what they got. And I mean, I think they imparted a lot of that to me.
0: And you told me when we chatted before we started recording um, that your mom had MS. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned her being handicapped. And I know you lost your parents recently the last two or three years. Talk about them, the impact they had on you. and i'm I'm really curious about seeing your mom in a wheelchair and how that might have influenced how you live life and how you interact with with the game of soccer.
1: I think the the biggest impact from my mom's point of view was that um, you know, I think it was my freshman year in high school. My mom, my mom had four different cancers. And so she survived all of them. And I remember her saying to me my freshman year, I just hope I can live to see you graduate from high school. And that was just like, I was like stunned when she said that I was, I had no idea like that, like just had not even thought about the possibility of not having my mom in my life. Um, and so I think when that happens and then you see her go through all these different trials and tribulations and then you see my dad taking care of her and all of that, like it just gives you a little bit different perspective in terms of, um, you know, nothing is taken for granted and you have this, um, this idea around things that you're going to have to work to make it happen, but you're also not sure 100% that it's always going to be there. So you, you cherish it a little bit more, I think
0: and mom blasted and, and, Oh my gosh, she lived.
1: totally outlived her life expectation. I mean, she died in her seventies and it was, it was crazy. Like she, we always tell the story that my mom is like a cat. She definitely had nine lives. I mean, and you know, credit my dad too, like he took care of her, um, 100% all the way up until the last probably two years of her life. And I did it for about 10 days. One time when my dad was in the hospital and I was like, how did he do this? Like, it is insane, the amount of care when you're fully caring for someone who can't transfer themselves, um, you know, who's got just all these needs. And I mean, it really gave me a new appreciation for my dad.
0: My grandpa had Parkinson's for a lot of my childhood and was in a wheelchair. And my grandma took care of him, but she had help. Um, to transfer him. And he was obviously bigger than her. And my grandma was one of the, that generation where she got all dolled up makeup on woke up early. Um, but she always had this energy and enthusiasm for life, even when he couldn't really speak or couldn't really communicate. Um, and the way she took care of him. And then my other grandpa, um, I'm fortunate that I knew these people, um, my other grandpa took care of my grandma when she had dementia and, and she was ended up in a wheelchair and he took care of her pretty much till the day he died. And, um, there is that selflessness and service that you look at for a partnership and, um, it, it's, it's
1: inspiring. Um, you know, two, two other things that are kind of related to that story with my parents. Um, one is I think that, um, when you see somebody in those situations and you live that every single day, it, it really makes you, um, understand the value of things. And my parents were never, they were never invested in me as a coach. I mean, they loved that I coached, um, once they got past the idea that it wasn't just like a hobby, <laughs> um, but they were never like into the wins and losses. You know, I can remember my mom watching us play and she would watch a game and she'd be like, oh, you guys played great. And I'm like, what game are you watching? You know? And she's like, but they played hard. I'm like, okay. So like, just never, never invested one way or the other. Um, but the other part to tie it to our first story is, um, I did DJ the nursing home parties, which was really (laughs) fun, by the way.
0: (laughs) I bet. Well, you know, you mentioned your mom never, necessarily letting her mood change depending on the wins and losses and just sort of seeing the good. I actually talk about my grandma, Yai who took care of my grandpa with Parkinson's Parkinson's. because when I was playing soccer and I did not play nearly at the level you did and probably have a 10th of your athletic capacity and ability, either at goalie or defense, I was good at five-year-old soccer, really good. I excelled elementary school superstar over here. But my grandma, yeah, I can remember just being on the sidelines and just saying, go, Brian, go, Brian. And we'd come off and it might have been the worst game ever, but we were getting orange slices and grandma was hugging us and telling the world how great we were. And whether it's your mom or my grandma, like we all should have that person in our back pocket. And I think we all need cheerleaders in our life, especially people that have a job. Like the job that you've been in for 20 plus years and uh, the ups and downs that come with winning and losing at an elite level and where expectations are high at a University of Florida. Um, so talk about your relationship with your mom and, and how that helped you as a coach, give you perspective, allow you to see the world maybe bigger than the walls of your office and the confines of a, of a soccer field.
1: I think that's a huge factor Uh, that's a really great point that you bring up because, um, you know, for one, I played D three soccer. I think I'm the only person in our athletic department that didn't play D one and had only uh, the only person who hadn't coached anything, but D one, um, my family, not just my mom and dad, but like my family, my friends, my closest friends are my college teammates and, um, all of them are just like the same way. Like love that I coach like enjoy being fans of the sport, but don't really care one way or the other about how we do. And I think it's really hard when, when coaches, especially high profile coaches at this level have everyone around them invested in how they do, because it puts this different pressure on you than just the wins and losses. It's, you know, this pressure of like, Hey, our family really likes this town, like do well. So we don't have to move, you know, like things like that are, subtle, but really powerful forces that I think interact with coaches in a difficult way.
0: I was just, we had mother's day. And so we were celebrating with my cousins and one of them is 10 years old and she had a tryout the next day. And so I'm talking to her and I got word that maybe she was a little nervous. And so I said to her, I'm like, okay, here are the three things I want you to to square yourself on. Number one, energy you're going to be the most energetic person on the team. Okay, cool. Number two, you're going to have fun. What does fun look like? Smiling, laughing. And she, she started smiling. I'm like, okay, you're going to score yourself on how you smile and and how you do with that. Number three, you're going to be a great teammate. So what does that look like? High fives, cheering people on. And I go, those those are the three things tomorrow. That's it. And it's so interesting because I think about this as a parent, because I think, parents, it's so easy to celebrate the goals and my kids are starting to play sports and you get excited when you see a goal and you want them to celebrate scoring goals. But there's something misleading about if you're just celebrating the goals and a kid learns that goal scoring is how you love them. And so right now I'm trying to figure out like, how do I help them understand that I love them regardless of if they put the ball in the net. And what I really want them to focus on, I just gave her those three things. There's more than that, but like, Hey, just give great energy, which I stole from Brenda freeze who told me that that's what she did with her twins. It's like, Hey, just play with energy, Um, fun and be a great teammate. And so I I think about that as a coach, as you're messaging to your players who are at Florida to win, there's no question. Like you don't go to play soccer, go play club soccer somewhere. If you want to, just have fun. Like it, like you said earlier, there's a grind to this. This is hard work. How do you mix in the desire to win and challenging them while also making sure that they never lose sight of that? They're playing a sport. How do you blend those two?
1: Great question. Um, I think that really comes down to having to deprogram most elite athletes from the experiences that they've had before they get here, you know, and and I think that some coaches think, why would you deprogram that? Because you know that killer instinct, that um, you know, let's just win at all costs attitude has probably served them well in some respects. But the question I think I would ask is, what, what's the collateral damage to that? Because most, most athletes, by the time they get to us, are at the very tail end of their career. Um, there's a few that will go on to play professionally, but most of them are ending in the four years here. So what happens when they don't have that anymore and their value is based on the goals they scored or how they played and now they don't have it. So are they unloved at that point? Are they unworthy at that point? Like, what does that look like? And I think that's why you see, you know, the rise of athlete development and transitions out of sport becoming such an important topic uh, because many don't do that very well, like transitioning out of sport. Um, I remember talking to Abby Wambach when she finished her pro career, you know, and she, has, she had a remarkable professional career, long professional career, much longer than after the University of Florida. And, you know, one of the things she said, she goes, I would just love someone to slide an itinerary under my door every morning, you know, just to tell me what I'm going to do. And I think that's what so many athletes are used to doing is having a routine. Someone's telling you what to do. You do it. But when you have to sustain that yourself, it becomes a whole different proposition.
0: You mentioned Abby. So she comes to you as a freshman. Um, you all win the national championship that year. I mean, I think you're what, 30 years? How old are you when you win the national championship? 30 yeah, years Yeah, I think
1: old? I was like 30. Yeah, 31 maybe.
0: So you're 30 years old. And just to fill in the gaps here, at 21, you started coaching.
1: Uh, and
0: and so you were a head coach. Um at 21, at 26, you're the head coach at Florida. And people sometimes forget, like Florida soccer did not exist before you were the head coach. And I think sometimes people don't realize that collegiate women's sports is still relatively new. I mean, this is still in its infancy stages um, at the Division One level in this elite environment. You get someone like Abby freshman year, who's been very open about some of her challenges and some of her... I don't know what, to, how to call them. I'll just call them challenges. I think that's fair enough, but there's no question. I mean, one of the best to ever do it. And I think one of the most well-known soccer players period in the world, what was it like getting her as a freshman and blending her with what you've been working four years to try to create and, and sort of sitting there saying, Hey, we've got a lot of talent probably, and we could probably do something special. What was that experience like for you as a 30 year old head coach?
1: Well, I think that when you when you have someone like Abby and you pair her with someone like Danielle Fotopoulos, who is still the NCAA leading goal scorer of all times, um, you know goals in our sport are the you know that's the separator. Like there's so many teams that can play well, but scoring is difficult. And so having a goal scorer like Abby and a goal scorer like Fotop, I mean, it's almost like dang don't mess that up you know like just stay out of the way and let them play
0: did you know that though did you know that like as soon you, know, as it's funny that you camp- ask
1: that because at the time one of my coaching heroes was a guy named clive charles he coached at portland and portland was a power and um i remember sitting on a hill in minnesota watching abby play and at that point like abby was shifting towards us a little bit in the recruiting thing and clive said to me um if you get Abby and you already have photop, you're going to win a national championship. Wow. And like listening to that from him, I was like, Oh, (laughs) so I just feel like that part of it, um, was interesting, but then, you know, Abby gets there as a freshman and she is like the competitor that everybody knows. Like she's an amazing competitor. Um, but she's also, you know, free for the first time, um, lots of freedom, lots of fame, lots of temptations. And, you know, I mean, Abby chronicles this pretty clearly in anything you've ever read or seen about her is that she enjoyed her college experience. And, and, and for her, she could do that and still perform at a very high level. Um, but there were times where some of her teammates, you know, were in that same boat with her and maybe couldn't perform at that same level. But to her credit, you know, I mean, I think Abby, when she looks back at that, she understands that at this point. And I think that, you know, she has clearly had a huge shift in her life in terms of the way that she lives her life. And it's just really exciting to see someone sort of go through that whole transition.
0: Did you treat her differently?
1: I don't know. I think I kind of treat everybody differently. Um, That's a good question. Um, I would say probably not. I think that, I think at that time, you know, it wasn't like Fotop wasn't enjoying college either. In a little different way, though, she was married. <laughs> Our goalkeeper for that team um, was an absolute star too, um, and so I think that I think that was a really just good confluence of personalities that um, sort of came together. And you know, we had we had gone through a lot of difficulties because you know at the time. Carolina was the standard by far and they're back in the final four this year so maybe they're re-emerging as the standard but um, you know we had lost to them multiple times and and lost to them badly you know lost to them nine nothing five nothing and to go through those trials and tribulations and get our weaknesses exposed over and over again and then finally you know that year we lost to them in the regular season two to one at our place but that was the closest we'd ever gotten only time we'd ever scored on them and then to play them in the national championship and win that game. Um, And it was a battle. I mean, clearly Carolina had a lot of talent on that team and it was just came down to a a matter of will, I think.
0: When I think of Abby, I think of someone who's an alpha, Um, someone who's right. Like willing to be different, willing to. That's how she
1: came to the university of Florida because clearly Florida was an outside the box choice for her at that time.
0: Where do you think that alpha comes from? You can even zoom out as you think about your career coaching. I had this conversation with the head coach, a division one head coach, where he said to me, I need an alpha. Like I I value having an alpha on our team. And and you've now seen it in a broader, broader sense. Do you think that's something that's developed? It's cultivated. Is it something more innate? And then the thing with an alpha is like they're gonna also challenge you. Um, and they're going to probably gonna be difficult to coach is no doubt. (laughs) So, so talk about a, is it something that can be cultivated and B, how do you coach and manage alphas?
1: Ooh, deep question there. Um, we've gone from the dance floor to the deep questions already. (laughs) It's
0: been a, it's been a process here. We've, 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 we've gone through family life upbringing. We've hit on some things. I think it's time.
1: I would say that, uh, I think Alphas, I'm not sure that's cultivated. I mean, I think, you know, Abby's the youngest of what is it? Eight kids, I think in her family. Um, I'm sure that she had her share of getting beat up by her older brothers and sisters in terms of how she was going to be able to compete with them. Um, that she was forced into being, you know, if you're going to play with us, then you're going to have to step up to what we do. And all of her brothers and sisters were D1 athletes. I mean, this is a very talented family. Um, and then I think in terms of coaching them, I mean, you know, I, I would say this not necessarily just about alphas, but in general, like I think when you give people the space to be who they are within the guardrails of your program, but but like not try to change them and not try to make them into something that they're not, that's when the player is gonna give you the best because they are operating in their sweet spot. The the challenge of that is is that gonna fall within your guardrails. And, you know, there were definitely times where Abby and other players challenged that. Um, and I think that's a, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, as a 21 year old head coach, a 26 year old coach at Florida, I think I learned early on that power was not going to be my strategy to manage people like at 21 um, as a head coach, I, I didn't have it, you know, like that's kind of crazy. And then even at 26 at Florida, I'm not sure I had it. So trying to manage through influence, although maybe not as efficient in the big picture, I think is, is really helpful because you get to the intrinsic part of motivation for other people, or you get to win-win situations where, you know, it's a good deal for both parties. And I think that's the part that helped me in my coaching that I didn't, really have like a ceiling on my ability to manage those alphas or people like that because I wasn't trying to power over them.
0: What do you mean by influence?
1: Um, I think it's more like getting them to think about their role in the team and how it affects other people. So for example, like, you know, if I, if I could talk to Abby about how I needed to coach her, that necessarily wasn't for her, but it might've been for her teammates. And would she buy into that?
0: I love the idea that success is actually about something bigger than yourself. Um, Cause plenty of people perform and have good performance, but if no one's there to celebrate, is it really success? Um, I don't know. I think success usually involves others and I hear you and I hear you basically say, Hey, I treated everybody differently, but I'm holding everybody accountable to certain standards and expectations. And, and perhaps I needed to be clear with someone like Abby, um, what those are and hold her accountable and still let her be her and not stifle it. And I actually think it, it if you go broader, it applies to all of us. And so for me, I know I'm good at winging it. I'm good at, if I didn't prepare for this conversation, I would be fine. It would be fine. But I know if I layer on top the preparation, I can find something like, you were a DJ or you played goalie um, your senior year. And now I can actually focus on what you're saying and and go deeper because I've got those. And so I've realized in my life, when I create systems and processes, I can then play within those systems and processes and I'm actually better off in them, but it takes a lot of work for me to create them. I don't have you, you know, every single day in my life Um, for you do you consider yourself to be an alpha? Do you consider yourself to be someone who um, needs that in their life? Or are you someone who has always been able to say, Hey, I know, because I wasn't the one that was recruited. Like my two teammates were at a high school that I have to do it a different way.
1: Hmm. You know, that reminds me, that question reminds me, we do an assessment with all the players that come into Florida called the disc assessment. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, um, it's really simple. It's good language, common language for teams. And when you talk about the disc assessment and you talk about alphas, you're probably talking about the D's, the dominant people in disc. And then the I's are the people who take up a lot of the room. You know, they need a lot of attention. So when you have someone that's a a high D and a high I um, those are often your alphas. And I think for me, like, I, by the way, it's behavior and not personality. So I think that's a really important point to make because I think I changed through the course of my lifetime. So growing up in, you know, really rural Massachusetts, really not having, I mean, we lived on 27 acres and like the nearest neighbor was like a mile away. And then moving to Florida and then having to integrate into a team at like age 10 when I had never even been around other kids, like let alone on a team. So like having to figure all that out, and then gaining a little confidence with that, going to high school and playing, going to club and playing, and then going to college and playing, and learning that, you know, I probably needed to lose a little bit of my judgment and have a little bit more curiosity and empathy about other people. And then becoming a coach. Like, I think that I would probably consider myself an alpha in the sense that my role requires some of that, but my role also requires me to be introspective and me to um understand others and and think about like what i need to think about what does the team need more than what i need so for example like we're in a game and you know it's really a lot of tension in the game and we give up a a bad goal you know in my mind like i'm as disappointed as anyone in that and i'm probably you know cussing in my head or like being really frustrated but if that's not what the team needs in that moment am I socially aware enough to provide the team what they need in that moment as opposed to what I feel? And so I think that's everyone's evolution is, you know, you can, you can have your natural behaviors, but ultimately if you're going to be an effective leader of people, it's about understanding what those people need in that moment, not so much what you need.
0: so good. I think the best leaders have high curiosity and high conviction And if you're just curious all the time and you're never convicted, you're not really leading. Um, And I think sometimes that gets lost in the conversation because people say, just stay curious, be a learner, be a Socratic leader. Okay, Socrates was a long time ago and the world changes and evolves and we have to change and evolve with it. And for me, I grew up in a household where conviction was high. And at the dinner table, you were able to speak your mind And we had debates and my brothers, I got two brothers, my parents, my mom and dad, none of us lack conviction. But as I've gotten older, I've learned is like, I also need to lean into curiosity and also have to do that first. So when I lean into curiosity, then I'm actually standing on something that, can be more convicted because it's based on research and it's based on me doing the work and being curious. And as here hear you talk, it's like, I need to be curious at times and learn what my players needs are and learn what the situation is. But I also need to stand for something at times and need to be convicted. And I once uh, was involved with an NBA team and they lost in the playoffs and in the locker room after the game was, what is the definition of insanity? They put this on the whiteboard, the players. And doing the same thing over and over again. And the coach had lost the, the players. And I think part of the reason the coach had lost them is because he was convicted in doing the same thing that he never stepped into curiosity to try to find a different way. For you as a coach, how do you think about curiosity and conviction and when you use them and when you think about them?
1: Oh, another good question. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I, I I can't, I got to find out who to attribute this to. I think it's urban Meyer, but I'm not sure. Um, it's called get curious and not furious. And I think when you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, you need that a lot (laughs) because people are going to do things in this environment when they're away for the first time. And there's all this going on in a college town, like that are going to make you really furious But if you find out like the why behind it, you're actually dealing with um, a little bit more of the issue as opposed to just the symptom. And I think that the conviction side of it, I think the older I've gotten, the more I've realized because I also grew up in a very um, debate central household. My college coach, man, he's Portuguese. He was the king of debates. Like if you couldn't make your point and hold a conversation like, Boy, don't don't even don't even try because you won't even enter in the conversation. Um, but I feel I feel like the more I've learned about conviction is that conviction kind of can lead you to a place where you are unwilling to hear others' opinions or add more information to what already exists in your mind. And I don't want to get there, um, but I also do feel like maybe conviction isn't the right word for it, but I do feel like the place for me that I could have grown the most um, in my coaching career and probably still uh, I went from like the most judgmental, t- judgmental teammate in the history of teammates as a college player to as a coach, you know, I'm, a, I'm an empathetic, curious listener. And so sometimes I think that I will give people a second chance possibly even a third chance. And if somebody, you know, um, does something that's disloyal to me, like I get over that really quickly. And I think that's good, but you've got to draw the line of where it's affecting the group in a negative way um, and making sure that you're not crossing that line.
0: Use the word judgmental. And I'm so curious to learn more about that that word and what it means to you because we're constantly told don't be judgmental. But your job is also to put out the best eleven and your job is to judge and evaluate. And if you're just looking at everybody optimistically, you might not be aware of some of their limitations or some of their flaws. And same thing with recruiting you have to evaluate you, you have to judge. So how do you think about judgment and when it serves you and when it hinders you and, and what's your relationship with judgment?
1: I think that, I think that relationships are unconditional or can be at least, but that teams are conditional. I mean, clearly like things like, if you don't pass the fitness test, you don't play. That's a condition. You know, if you don't pass your classes, you don't play. Um, so I think that you can still be unconditional in your relationship with people and conditional in terms of your team agreements. And I've seen that play out, you know, even with kids who have, you know, gotten in trouble with us, or even to the extent of being asked to leave our team, that doesn't mean I have to leave that relationship. I can still be part of that relationship with that person, but the conditions that our team requires don't allow them to continue to be a part of it. And I think that, um, you know, it takes a pretty evolved person to be willing to continue a relationship when they've been removed from a team and it may not happen immediately, but I do feel like if I am the person opening that door, that's the only way it's going to happen because it's probably not going to happen the other way. And I think that's where I've gotten a lot less uh, judgmental. I don't take it personally when somebody makes a mistake. Matter of fact, um, I'm moving offices right now. I usually have a box of Q-tips on my desk because Q-tips reminds me of quit taking it personally, because if I took everything personally that happened to me as a coach, like it, it would just be a daily occurrence. So Q-tips uh, <laughs> is
0: acronym for quit taking it personally, I love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that, I literally have a little box that? of Q-tips. No, I think I heard it at the NCAA Coaches Academy
0: one time. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before. Look, we're going to talk about what's next for you. And you're, you're retiring. Um, when I say retirement, it doesn't even sound like the right word. I'm sure that doesn't land with you because it seems like you're just getting started. But I want to talk about the business and culture of sports. And when I talk about business and culture of sports, I'm talking about elite college sports. And I'm talking about professional From my experience, I have never seen an industry with more paranoia, lacking boundaries, and with more transactional relationships. And I say that, and I say that, I almost want to cry. Like, I I get sad saying that because I love sports, and I love the people in sports, and I love what sports is about and the ecosystem. But I've worked with enough people to see those things come up, paranoia lack of boundaries and transactional relationships. And so I want to talk about the weight of sports and the toll it can take um, because you've been in it and it's all you've known since you were 21 years old. And here you are 30 years later um, and you're still going to be involved in sports, but in a different way. So I'd love for you to just talk about paranoia. I'd love for you to talk about lack of boundaries and perhaps the transactional nature that can happen in sports and ways that you've tried to maybe combat them, or how you think about let's just start with paranoia. And then I'll, I'll sort of go through that. So how do you think about paranoia in sports, because I've witnessed that that really can run amok um, within a sports culture.
1: Well, I think, I think the overall umbrella of what you're talking about is just like a little bit of a lack of professionalism in sports in terms of the profession, you know, like it'd be like, oh, you're going to go to your dentist and the dentist is like, oh, never really done this before, but open that mouth and let me check it out, you know, like, and that's what we do with coaches, like coaches learn by getting dropped into the environment and figuring it out and you survive or you don't, or you move up or sometimes you cast the trash with somebody who's not good just to get them out of your program. You know, like there's just all this lack of preparation and professionalism within our sport that really needs to be addressed because I think if we can deal with that on the front end, then we're not dealing with all these things on the back end. But, you know, to speak to your paranoia, I feel like I was blessed to be in the sport of soccer because soccer to me is a very collaborative sport. Like, um, we have coaching schools that we are, we all have grown up knowing that in order to coach, you go to coaching school and it's a, it's a real thing. Like, it's not just like a social activity. Like you have to go and be prepared and make your way through the licenses. And that at least has offered our sport, um, the ability to have some professionalism with it, but also collaboration. You know, when I was coaching at Berry college, small NEI school, you know, I could call up Anson Dorrance at UNC and say, Hey, can I come watch your practice? And what he modeled to me was like, heck yeah, like, come on, like bring friends if you want. And everybody in our sport, I think coming up felt that influence of him and other leaders in our sport, being able to do that. I look at other sports, like for example, basketball and not to pick on basketball, but like, I feel like they're one of the most close to the best sports I've ever seen where people don't want to share anything. They don't want to matter of fact, they'll probably give you false information, you know, like, and so for me, it's really interesting when I'm crossing sports to see the reaction of other coaches and other sports. And to be sad about the fact that I think soccer is moving towards those other sports instead of the other sports moving towards soccer.
0: Mm. Boundaries.
1: that's a, that's an interesting one. I I don't know where this comes from. I think it's the culture of like, Hey, you know, sleep in your office and work until 2.00 AM. And, you know, like this culture, like it's a badge of honor to do that. And, and I think when you have that as a badge of honor, boundaries are crossed. So like, you know, if I'm a head coach and I'm texting my assistants at one in the morning, expecting a response, like that's a boundary, like seriously, like, I'm sleeping at one, you know? So like, I just think that that part of it is, it's, it's just the lack of professionalism that we have. Um, we have not had a system that has created professionalism, which then has led to this culture of there are no boundaries in order to get ahead. You got to do everything at the highest level. You got to squeeze every little bit out of everybody. And that kind of turns into the transactional part that you said, like, these players are pawns for me to move to the next step, and then as I get to the next step, then these players are pawns for me to move to the next step, and I just think that's a that's a sad reality in our sport. That you know, as the money and the prestige and the power of these jobs has increased, it's made them uh, very you know attractive opportunities, and that has changed the landscape of things. You know, nobody was clamoring for. My job at Barry, when I got there, I think I interviewed with one other person, but you know, by the time I moved to Florida, there was a lot more. And now Florida is interviewing right now. And there's a lot more, like it's just the business of sports and the dollars that are behind it that are driving it.
0: Do you think you would have been able to say exactly what you said a year ago on this podcast?
1: I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that we all know that, um, there is that part of sports that exists. I think My hope is that there's a brighter and different future. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about going into coach development, because I mean, I just I think I was lucky, very lucky that I had really good people in my life during the different steps. So like whether it was my athletic director, the men's coach at Barry, whether it's all the other coaches at Florida and my athletic director, like super supportive. And I think my age helped me because people were like, Oh, she's really young. Like we need to help her, (laughs) you know? And I was open to getting help because I'm a soccer person, which is collaborative, but you know, for most people, it doesn't work that way. And it just becomes a situation where you get dropped into this environment. We want instant results. And if you don't, if it doesn't work out, then we say next. And that's a, that's a tough way to live, you know? And I really feel like coach development can help at least a little bit professionalize the profession, as well as prepare people to when they do get dropped in these environments, they don't feel like they're just on an island.
0: So we're going to talk about coaching development and what drives winning and all that good stuff. Before we do, I've interviewed Muffin McGraw. Roy Williams is another person that comes to mind as a high profile person that's retiring. And I think people were surprised when he announced his retirement.
1: Yeah, I think I started that trend. He saw my retirement. Yeah.
0: You yeah. Know. This was the Becky, we call this the Becky effect, but Muffet was Muffet was a little before you. So look, I'm going to just say that three of you, um, I'm sure there are others, um, are retiring different age, different ages, but all national champions, successful coaches with job security. Um, would you have done this if, if the pandemic didn't come? Like what, What triggered this transition? And and the reason I say this is because I've seen so many people make some sort of transition over the past year that they perhaps wouldn't have done. Um, Did you have a vision for doing this regardless of the pandemic? Or did the pandemic sort of open up the possibility that this was a reality for you?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that, um, you know, opportunity had to meet you know, the ability to, to launch into a coach development platform had to be there. And, you know, fortunately UF has provided that with a master's degree program here where we can take the wet drives winning material into those classes. I think also the pandemic sort of allowed people to see college sports as it was, but also like what it was important in your life, you know? So when, when sort of everything is stripped down, it's like, okay, so, you know, what do I want to do in the next 10 years? And am I allowed to do that? Or am I going to be able to do that with a coaching lifestyle? Because the coaching lifestyle is very all encompassing, you know, and as flexible as the job is sometimes there are some parts that are 100% inflexible. So I know my life from, you know, July until December, I know pretty much where I'm going to be every day for the entire time. And I know that there's going to be no days off during that time. And then, you know, we'll get a little bit of break when the dead period hits in December and then January will start. And then I know my life from January until April, you know? And so it's like, those things are, there. it's good because you have a sense of a rhythm. And I'm I'm sure there'll be some parts of me that will miss that with not coaching, but it's also bad in the sense that like, you know, you're not going to any weddings in the fall (laughs) ever. You're not going to any, you know, family events or other things that happen during your season. And so having a little bit different rhythm of life, I think was one of the really big driving forces for me.
0: Are you hoping to transform it so that people can go to weddings in the fall? Or is that just a product of sports and sacrifice. And, you know, July to December, that's your season, you know, heck y'all got a good, you don't have baseball and you have to travel <laughs> all year. Like, w- w- and and I worked with DC United and I was amazed at how long their season was. And, you know, we'd finish in the fall and then they'd be right back in January and camp down by you in Florida. Um, and I'd be like, one of these guys getting a break. Um, so, and, and you can't complain because you work in sports and you're making a lot of money. And so who are you? Like, you're not a blue collar worker like Becky's dad. So what are you complaining about? Um, but is there a possible way to do this differently in the future? Because there are limitations when you think about the lack of autonomy that can occur with sports and, and sacrifice. So how what's your vision? How How do you see it?
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of jobs where maybe the lack of autonomy exists. You know, I'm not trying to say that sports has a priority on that. Like if you look at, you know, a Wall Street job or a corporate America job, I'm sure there's some of the same things. I think the thing that we need to teach is how do we manage that? Like, how do we keep perspective in this crazy world that we live in in sports? And the difference between sports and the Wall Street world is that, you know, it's not scrolling across the ticker like hey, Brian lost a big contract with this company today, you know, like it's not scrolling across the ticker. So the public part of our job is a game changer in terms of mental health. And I think that's where, like, for example, you know, like I said, I was fortunate, my family and friends, my inner circle were not invested me as a coach. And that helped me keep perspective because, you know, I would be hanging out with them and they'd be like, how is it even possible that you're the university of Florida coach? Like, this is crazy, you know, like, and, and I don't think other people have that. So how can we help them create systems and routines and mission statements or however it is that works for them that keep them grounded when the madness is going on,
0: what drives winning. So is that a question or is that an answer?
1: That's a, that's, that's the point. It's both. (laughs) Um, I think for us, like, we're really intentional in that idea of what drives winning being both a question and an answer. Um, our whole, you know, platform is built on asking good questions. And I think really when you think about coaching, like coaching is about asking the right questions, not having all the answers. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who think coaches should have all the answers, but I think if we're asking the right questions, we're empowering others to find the answers, which is a much more sustainable model
0: it's interesting. There's something called the international coach federation, and I'm certified in it as an executive coach. And that is their, their thesis, which is a coach asks great questions in sports coaching. That is less popular. Um, you know, when someone comes to the sidelines, you do need to have answers. Whereas the work that I do uh, you know, I worked with four executives yesterday. It was mainly me asking them questions and then them telling me, what they do, and they're in all kinds of different industries. How do you see that playing going forward? How do you still be a great questioner, but still know the X's and O's and still make sure that you're providing guidance and answers for your teammates? How do you blend those two?
1: Well, I think that you have to look at it as like, Asking questions um, may not be an efficient process, but it's an effective process. And, and where is that happening? So, for example, in training, you know, asking a question may slow the process down slightly, but in the end, um, now I can problem solve that issue in a game myself because I'm equipped with the tools to do it. You know, in a game situation where you know, we need to decide if there's going to be two or three people in the wall for the set piece it's not a good time to say, well, what do you think? You know, like that might just be a need for efficiency, but hopefully we've taught them in practice that, you know, when you see this cue, the ball is out this far, like this dictates that we should have three people in the wall. So now we're not even asking that question in a game. Um, So I just think it's, it comes down to uh, the, the, the challenge is okay. So we have players for four years, if we're lucky, you know, the season is, Six months, if we're lucky, you know, like, so that compressed time frame. I think is what takes away from people's willingness to go down the route of uh, looking at things from the short term versus the longer term.
0: And for those that are unfamiliar with what drives winning, give them an idea of what it's all about, what your involvement is. Uh, You can go into the history of it quickly, but I think it's more interesting as far as where you're going as opposed to where you've been. Nothing against where you've been. I mean, some of the best video content for anyone interested in leadership, especially if you're in the sports world. You've probably seen one of their videos at some point, Um, but talk about where you're going with it and what you're hoping to build with Brett.
1: Well, Brett Ledbetter is my business partner in What Drives Winning and he is by far the best question asker I've ever met. Um, He can draw information out of people with his style of question asking like no other. And basically our interactions with coaches are really about us asking questions and and then us kind of pondering on those answers. So what we've come from is like we started to at Florida, I started using Brett with my team because he was working in an academy for fifth to 12th grade basketball players. And I was like, well, I don't know if this is going to work in a competitive setting because he was just in a developmental setting. Loved what he was doing with my team. Other coaches saw it. We started to have a head coaches collaboration here at Florida where we would just kind of ask questions of each other and kind of, um, synthesize information together. That was amazing. Then we decided to do it on a national level where we would have these conferences where we would bring coaches from different sports together and ask them questions. And this just continued to grow. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's like, I think people find their tribe when they come to us because they feel like, finally, I am dealing with people who care about the people they coach, who want to be curious as coaches and learn and who want to be around people who are transformational instead of transactional. And it's just sort of uh, it's crazy. I mean, it, the company is a small startup, I guess you would say, but it's grown so much that it's like, you would think it's a much bigger presence than it really is.
0: And you're also going to be teaching um, at Florida. So talk about what that looks like for you and then just close the loop on, on why retire and what you're excited about going, going forward.
1: Well, that's the synchronicity with What Tries Winning is what's been amazing. So basically, we're taking the information that we've learned from all these interviews with different coaches and leaders in the sports world, putting them into a course um, and multiple courses. So ultimately, there will be five What Tries Winning classes that are offered in the sports management department of the University of Florida. And so five three hour classes is actually a specialty area and you could major in what drives winning. Um, and that's pretty cool. And I think that this, this fall we'll start with two next fall we'll add, or next spring we'll add two more and the following fall we'll add the fifth, but really, really excited about um, taking that to an educational platform like UF, which has an amazing academic and sports brand um, and excited about just getting the word out more about this is not, Brett and Becky, this is all the coaches who have participated, you're getting access to these people that most of us would really never have access to. And I think about that from my development, like that's an education that I couldn't have paid for. I mean, being able to, you know, sit down with some of these iconic coaches and pick their brains a little bit has been just an amazing part of my development.
0: It's interesting because I've always wondered why isn't there a coaching major, uh, in in
1: Like, wow. I would have totally majored in coaching. Really, you, Clearly,
0: know, you dad, started coaching at 21.
1: My dad being the practical person was like, coaching is not a real profession. And I was like, okay, well, I'll be a teacher. And uh, I was he's like, what kind of teacher do you want to be? I said, well, I really like English. He's like, they never hire English teachers, math or science. So I'm like, well, I hate math. So I guess I'll be a biology major.
0: <laughs> well, it, it seems like things have worked out for you quite well. Congrats on all the success that you've had. I'm, as I said, I'm, I think I'm most excited about where you're going and the possibilities I think are endless as you step into this full time. And uh, if people want to follow you on social media or follow what you're up to, where can they do that?
1: So really simple. If they want to follow me, it's just at Becky Burley. All my handles on social media are just at Becky Burley. And then really simple also for what drives winning it's just whatdriveswinning.com.
0: Perfect. I am at Brian Levinson on Twitter and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Becky coach, appreciate you. Looking forward to seeing all the places you go and at some point connecting in person as well. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: I'm excited about inviting you to the next wedding IDJ.
0: <laughs> well, it's gonna cost you. And uh, you know, I am not a free agent. In that sense, well, I guess I am a free agent, but I'm not free for my work at weddings. I only
1: floor am- filler. We're just gonna call you the floor filler.
0: I am good at that, but don't underestimate loaded potato skins as an appetizer. You can do a macaroni and cheese bar if you want. Mini mini hot dogs are great. Lamb chops are probably all time appetizer because everybody knows it's not about the entree. You can't really nail the entree as much as you want to. It's always about the appetizers. And, uh, yeah, so we will, we'll put together, you know what you're now, you got a little more time on your hands. We can, this
1: is it. This is the, we could be a duo. We could be hired together.
0: (laughs) This is our future. So the podcast, this will be the last one ever, and we are going into business (laughs) together and we are going to be doing Becky and Brian's wedding planning, but we're not actually going to be in the wedding planning. We're just the game day. That's what we are good at. So you can hire someone else to tell you about all the other things, but game day, you got Becky and Brian. You're good. That's the commercial. We don't have ads on this podcast. There you go. Hit us up, Becky and Brian. We're ready to go. Becky, thanks, me. For on, thanks, me. thanks for coming on the podcast. Talk soon. Peace. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem.
1: My hope is that there is a brighter and different future. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about going into coach development because I mean, I just, I think I was lucky, very lucky, that I had really good people in my life during the different steps. So, like, whether it was my athletic director, the men's coach at Barry, whether it's all the other coaches at Florida and my athletic director, like, super supportive, and I think my age helped me because people were like, oh, she's really young, like we need to help her, <laughs> you know? And I was open to getting help because I'm a soccer person, which is collaborative. But, you know, for most people, it doesn't work that way. And it just becomes a situation where you get dropped into this environment, we want instant results, and if you don't, if it doesn't work out, then we say, next. And that's a that's a tough way to live, you know? And I really feel like coach development can help at least a little bit professionalize the profession as well as prepare people to when they do get dropped in these environments, they don't feel like they're just on an island.